Welcome to uh, Capshaw Connect. I mentioned last week uh, kind of the, the format that we're going to take. I, what I didn't mention was uh, we also want to, uh, the plan is during this time to have sort of a teaching team. And so over the next uh, ministry year, we're going to have some other folks who are going to be teaching uh, using their gifts as we go through a, a variety of, well, a couple of different series. We're going to finish up this series, have a couple of Q&As regarding uh, elders and deacons coming up. And then uh, the next series, which I'm really excited about, is uh, going to be called uh, The Gospel in Life. And it's going to be looking at how the gospel, really how people change and uh, how the gospel really is the, uh, the agent of uh, what really brings us closer to God, helps us to change, and is the fuel for our sanctification. Tonight we're going to continue um, with our series on the Lord's Prayer. And last week, uh, immediately after Capshaw Connect, we, I had a, a deacon's meeting, and uh, one of the guys opened the meeting with prayer, as we uh, typically do, and then uh, afterwards, someone made a joke about evaluating that prayer based on what we had just learned. And it was pretty funny, actually, but I did, it did occur to me that, you know, what I really don't want to happen as a result of this particular uh, study is for us to be listening critically uh, to other people's prayers and then saying, oh, that was a primitive prayer or, oh, that was a, judge, that was a ritual prayer or whatever. We did it. The goal, of course, is not for us to be able to accurately evaluate our peers' prayers and grade them accordingly, uh, but hopefully to uh, for us to see, based on the model that Jesus has given us, how uh, we are to pray in a way that's consistent, again, with uh, the biblical teaching. I think there are a couple of uh, really ditches that we can veer off into as it relates to prayer, and I think one is to... Uh, so emphasize what we say, that is to say the words and, and you know, the, what we're praying about, that we really don't actually do a lot of praying. You know, we're so, we're so worried about, am I saying the right things? Am I, am I praying for the right things? Is this acceptable? Is that acceptable? That we really don't actually, we're not really praying. You know, the, uh, the Puritans had a saying that, that went like this, pray until you pray. And what they meant was, you know how it is, and I do this all the time. You sit down and you start praying, and you realize maybe five, six, seven minutes into it, you really haven't paid any attention to what you were saying. And maybe you've, you've paid a little attention, but you realize you've kind of gotten lost in, in other things, thinking about other things. And so what they, the Puritans would say is you just keep praying and pleading with God, talking with God, until you find that you're actually communing with God. So I think one ditch that we can veer off into is we're, we so emphasize what it is we're praying for that we're not actually really communing with God. And then I think the other, the other ditch on the other side is that we're, um, we talk to God, which is wonderful, but we're, we're not praying in a way that's consistent with the biblical prescription. We're praying for things maybe, uh, and James tells us we can pray for things for selfish motives so that we can consume it on our own lust. And so uh, we're praying for things, but they don't really match what we're called to pray for. So this is really, this study is really the answer to Jesus' question to one of his disciples, or really a request from his disciples, uh, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. So that's uh, what we're looking at. Tonight we're going to be considering the, the so-called three thou petitions, these three requests made to God concerning uh, God himself. And uh, let me just 
by way of review, give you the definition that we looked at last week for prayer. We said uh, biblical prayer is a renunciation of human confidence and a corresponding appeal to God based on need illuminated by Scripture and subordinated to the will of God. So it's us uh, going before the Lord, confessing before the Lord how much we need him. We can't do the things that need to be done. Only he can do those things, things like changing hearts and bringing about revival and, and, and capturing the hearts of our children and reconciling conflict and so on. And so we go renouncing our own human ability um, and then appealing to God based on that recognition that he would hear us, and we bring needs to him that are illuminated by Scripture. We also saw last week um, that what's most concerning to God is not uh, the position of our bodies, so to speak. Um, it's not the phrases that we use or the number of words that we use, but in fact, it is the, it's the disposition of our hearts. So are we going to God with a sense of dependence? Um, are we going to God with humility? Are we going to God um, actually expecting that he's going to hear us? Are we going to God with the boldness that he calls us to approach his throne in Christ? So it's really less about, you know, the posture of our bodies, again, and more about the way that we approach uh, God. And so um, now Jesus, again, has instructed us how to pray. That's what we're looking at. The Lord's Prayer is something that we can repeat uh, verbatim, and so there's nothing wrong with um, in, a, in a service or in your home or around the table or, at, you know, at night with your kids actually reciting the Lord's Prayer. In fact, that's a very good thing um, just to go through the very specific words that Jesus uses, um, but it's more than simply, again, something we recite. In fact, uh, New Testament scholar David Turner says this, the Lord's Prayer is not a mantra to be repeated mindlessly or superstitiously, but an example of a prayer informed by kingdom values, the kind of prayer a disciple should pray. So it's the kind of prayer that a disciple should pray. Anybody use uh, the Lord's Prayer in your home at all? It's okay if you don't, but it's uh, a lot of times, yeah, it's excellent. I mean, sometimes um, Baptists look at these sorts of things, repeating the Lord's Prayer, reciting the Lord's Prayer, catechisms, as kind of a Roman Catholic thing, but, you know, that's not at all the, the case. And so um, if you don't do that, it would be, it, there's, there's great value in that. But again, it's not simply just saying the words. It's Jesus is telling us, showing us the kind of prayer that we should pray, um, teaching his followers a way to pray. So we, we, we glean from that sort of principles that we can extrapolate and then incorporate into our own prayer lives so that we're praying in a way that's consistent with uh, kingdom priorities. So um, we talked last week, again, just about the intimacy that we enjoyed, uh, we enjoy now as those who can come directly to God. And uh, I, we had a special series on prayer a few years ago when I was preaching, and I, I had a couple of guys that I knew were really devoted to prayer. These are guys that I respect a ton. Um, and I just had them come and share a little bit about their own prayer lives before, before I would get up and preach. And, um, and one guy who had a very rough past and God saved him out of drugs and a number of other things. And, and I remember his thing, the way that he approached it as he was sharing his, his enthusiasm for prayer was just how overwhelmed he was that he could actually go to the, the living God, the creator of the universe and be heard by him. And this so stirred his soul that, I mean, he couldn't wait to be alone with God. And I think, you know, we have this intimacy that, you know, read the Old Testament, as I talked about last week, 
Now we see that, you know, certainly the God is called our Father in the Old Testament, and yet we don't see people actually addressing God as Abba, Father. He's called a Father of the fatherless and so on, but Jesus kind of introduces this, this unparalleled intimacy. And even the Psalms, which contain great honesty and transparency and candor and, and sometimes are even, I don't know, I would say sometimes even uncomfortable in their directness, there's still really an emphasis on the transcendence of God, the sovereignty of God. Um, and Jesus tells us, you know, in a very different way to come to God as Abba, Father. So in Christ, we, we cry out to a God who loves us. Um, to a God that we can go directly to without a human priest, without a, a certain building or a place or an altar, without special language or posture, but a God who's made himself accessible through the person and work of Jesus. So, and, and to that, so Jesus, as he instructs us to pray, he says, our Father in heaven, and then uh, verse 9. So we're just going to be in really 9 and 10 tonight, uh, the last part of verse 9. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. This is the first of the three so-called uh, thou petitions. And I want to look at those and um, try to explain uh, what they mean. And what I really want to do is I'm going to take the three thou petitions and then I want to paraphrase them in a way that I think hopefully captures the essence of them. And then right before we wrap up, I want to show you my own sort of approach to prayer, my own personal life. And and how I try to incorporate these in, uh, in my own life. So um, first one is, hallowed be thy name. And it literally reads in the Greek, cause to be hallowed your name. Um, if you want, I'll show you the Greek. And I won't do this with all of them. But the agios thento ta anamasu, the first word there is third person singular. It's in the aorist passive imperative, which I know doesn't mean a lot to you probably. But... What it means is it's one person telling another person to, to cause something to come about. So it's, it's actually, in, it's in the imperative. And what it is is we are asking God to do something that only he can do. So cause your name to be hallowed or, or sanctified or holy. Um, and I mentioned last week the difference between sort of our way of thinking and the, the way of the ancient Near Eastern world um, when we when we set something apart, we we put it out of the way, right? So we had we got a, a an email or I don't know a Facebook message I guess last week from friends of ours in Dayton, Ohio that we hadn't seen in twelve thirteen years. They said, "Hey, we want to come down and see you guys. We're going to be at church on Sunday morning, and they we'd like to spend the day with you." So first thing I thought is, "There goes my Sunday afternoon nap," but uh, I got over that. I wouldn't say quickly. I got over it. Um, and then we, but we were excited to welcome these friends we hadn't seen so long. But it meant that we had to get the house in order. And Janine keeps the house in, in great shape all the time. But we try to move some things, you know, get some things uh, cleared up. And so I looked at a table in, in our, an office area, and there's a bunch of stuff stacked on it. So I just, you know, open the closest closet, shove it in there, and close the door. That's what we mean by getting something out of the way, right? But in the ancient Near Eastern world, to set something apart, meant to make it actually central. So, so if I were to follow the ancient Near Eastern mindset on that, I would take whatever junk I had, and I would put it right in the center of the main room of the house. So what, what Jesus is telling us to do is he's, 
He's saying we, we actually are calling on God to set apart or to make central his own very name. In other words, Jesus says our utmost priority in this life, as reflected by our prayers, should be that God himself causes his own name, but that is to say his person, his character, his essence, to be made central in our lives in our nation, and, and in our world. So here's what we're asking God to do. Here's, this is my paraphrase of the first thou petition. It's this. Father, make your real identity known so that you are recognized and exalted as God, set apart as holy in my heart and our world. That's what Jesus is instructing us to actually plead for God to do. God, Will you make your real identity known so that you are recognized and exalted as God? Because you are God. Let your, make your identity known in our world, in my own heart, right, and in our nation. This is a prayer asking God to enable us to seek his glory above our own, which will only happen as we realize, again, how awesome and beautiful and powerful and holy and majestic he is. What this is, this is a prayer pleading with God himself to make himself known as he truly is. Our hearts should long for God to be recognized as God, to be honored as God. Uh, there's a, one of the foremost theologians in, in America, David Wells, has written a, a, like a sort of a trilogy, and in one of them uh, called No Place for Truth, he says that the defining mark of our day is that God has become weightless. And what, he's, what he goes on to say is, we, there's no real reverence for God. There's no fear of God. His judgments are no longer awe-inspiring. His character no longer moves us. Now, of course, it's a blanket statement. But what Jesus is instructing us to pray is that God would make himself known as he truly is. And this is because... The knowledge of God is, is humanity's greatest need, to know God and to be reconciled with God. And I can say, of all the counseling that I've done over the years, and, and just as a side note, we're really, really blessed at this church with some amazing counselors. Pastor Adam and Sarah Rice are both terrific counselors. We've got other lay people who are remarkable counselors, so we're really blessed. But in, in, in the counseling that I've done over the last 18 years, I would say, that most of the time, most of the time, the anxieties, struggles, fears, whatever plaguing the person, person I'm counseling, they're typically prompted by some misunderstanding of who God is. I, uh, one of the most memorable, perhaps the most memorable, was a lady, a young lady by the name of Jennifer. She was a Korean-American. She was dating a guy, uh, a Ugandan, and they had asked me to officiate at their, uh, their wedding. So I met with them, and I typically would do five pre-marriage counseling sessions, and I met with them. They had been coming to the church that I pastored for only about four months, maybe five months. And Jennifer sits down in my office, and she said, my whole life I have felt like a complete failure. And what happened was her father was extremely demanding, extremely, I mean, his his uh, standards were just absolutely impossible to meet. And, and she said, I could never do enough grade-wise, even though she got straight A's. 
She didn't take enough honors, AP classes, whatever it was. I can never do enough grade-wise. I can never do well enough in terms of my chores at home. I can never do well enough in terms of my relationship. And she said, until I started, till I was exposed to, to grace-centered, Christ-centered preaching, she said, I have, I, I have sort of uh, looked at God as I would view my father. And she just sat in my office and wept. She just wept because she said, I have just felt like my whole life I have been led. And, and it, it resulted in eating disorder, all, all kinds of things that she had gone through. And she was only 25 years old, gone through all kinds of things because her view of God was the same as her father, who was, who was unloving. Uh, in fact, she had told me these things about her father. And, I could, and I, I'll tell you, when I met her father at the wedding, I sh all I did was shake his hand. And I felt like I'd terribly disappointed him. I'm serious. I mean, this guy was a guy who just, you just always felt like you had let this guy down. And for this lady, because of her misunderstanding, young lady, this beautiful, brilliant young lady, because of her misunderstanding of God, led to all kinds of issues in her life. And I, and, and I see that I've seen this over and over and over, the importance of understanding who God is. And what this prayer is, is we're asking God to actually reveal himself as he truly is in our own hearts first, so that we have a right understanding of God, so that we are, so that God sets apart his own name in our own hearts, but also then in uh, the world we live in. We know that because of this baggage of the flesh, um, and theologians talk about the noetic effect of sin, it, it changes the way that we view everything. We, we don't really view God rightly. None of us does. We don't view God rightly. And so it's part of being sanctified by Christ over the long haul is learning through the power of the gospel, a regular diet of the gospel, learning to see and understand and appreciate God as he truly is. And this then is a prayer that God would, would cause that uh, to happen. Um, now what happens is we begin to understand the character of God, the holiness of God, the beauty of God. We then are struck by just how far we are separated from him and how desperately we need his grace and his mercy if we ever would be redeemed. And so that's why Jesus begins, Father, he says, hallowed be your name. Cause your name to be set apart. Notice he doesn't say, let us hallow your name. He says, cause your name to be hallowed. In fact, uh, Frederick Bruner has written a, uh, just a beautiful commentary on the book of Matthew. He says this, in none of the first three petitions are we mentioned at all. Human beings are, are put one remove away. He's a, a British guy, so he talks like that. He said, and we ask, we ask the only one who can really hallow God's name to do so, God himself. God, will you cause your name to be central in my own heart, in my own life, in our world? Now, why is this so important? Well, just think about some of the ways that our culture views and portrays God. Think about the way that God is portrayed in Hollywood. Think about the way that, that God is portrayed in philosophical literature, going all the way back, you know, well before Christ, and sort of the Greek approach to God, this, this distant, unmoved mover, completely impervious to anything that human beings would go through, and you follow that trajectory all the way to where we are now, and you see that the views of God 
are so messed up, so unbiblical, and that's why uh, this is so necessary, and one reason. All right, so let's look at the second thou petition, verse 10. Your kingdom come. Again, a more literal reading of that is cause to come your kingdom. Cause to come your kingdom. This is a request of God. It's, again, I, mean, I, I, I say this. This is, actually, this is accurate, but it's hard to say. It's an imperative. It's, it's, it's saying, God, cause to come your kingdom. Uh, in 1566, Dutch uh, Renaissance uh, artist Pieter Bruegel, the elder, uh, painted a portrait entitled The Sermon of St. John the Baptist. And I have it behind me, or right now it's in front of me. I'm turning this way. You can see. You can't really see very well. If you looked at this up close, uh, can you even see John the Baptist? Can you see John the Baptist in that at all? Yeah, so it's not, you can't really see him very well. This is a, a picture in the six, 16th century of of John the Baptist when he came on the scene as preaching ministry. If you could see it more closely, kind of in the middle to the right, there's a guy sort of standing with his arms folded, apparently angry about what's going on. In the middle left, there's a guy with his mouth uh, open wide, probably snoring or something. Um, you see kids up in a tree. This is, the, this is an artist's rendering of, of what happened when John the Baptist came on the scene. And, of course, there was, you know, he, he was... He, he caused a lot of attention. There hadn't been a prophet in Israel in some 400 years. So, um, and not only that, the guy's preaching. Uh, the guy is dressed strangely. He's got a camic, uh, camel's hair tunic on, a leather belt, and so on. But the thing that made John the Baptist's message that, that caused so much attention and stir was his message, which was repeatedly, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, you follow, you trace the ministry of Jesus this was also the first, sort of the first words of Jesus in his batting order and his, his message, repent and believe the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, um, Matthew 4 tells us, summarizes Jesus' ministry this way, and he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And then when Jesus would send out the 12, he would say this to them, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus tells us when we pray to say to God, cause to come your kingdom. Well, what are we talking about? Why is the kingdom so important? And why does it take such precedence in Matthew's gospel? Matthew actually uses the phrase kingdom of heaven 32 times in his gospel and it's really a synonym for the kingdom of God. Those words are used interchangeably. Why is that so important? And what are we talking about when we talk about the kingdom of God? Um, well, the kingdom of God uh, and kingdom of heaven, again, referred typically uh, to, the, to the same two things. The first one was a, it's used to refer to as a future concrete realm. And that is to say a real physical place a new home where there's no death, no sickness, no dying, no cancer, no sadness, where Jesus governs with perfect righteousness. So now this, by the way, is not going to be the final dwelling place of the believer is not going to be heaven, but it's going to be the new earth where we're actually doing earthly things not just sort of floating around or playing ukuleles or anything like that. We're going to be doing earthly things, eating and drinking and working and, and enjoying fellowship with each other and, of course, worshiping all of those things. 
So sometimes when the New Testament, the Gospels talk about the kingdom, it is a reference to this, this future concrete realm, a real tangible place where the people of God will go and be with God under the righteous reign of Jesus forever. So that's one aspect of it. Um, there's another aspect of it, and that, that is the kingdom of God, is, and that is the present dynamic rule of God. That's kind of the, the other uh, reference to it. And that, that's, that's talking about the transforming power of God, which is extended through the words and works of God's messengers. The kingdom of God is both of those things. God is preparing for us a real place uh, where we will dwell with him forever. Um, but even now, God has invaded this world and announced his dynamic rule through the, in this life. And he makes that, that pronouncement, you might say, through the life, the miracles, the death, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, I, uh, when I, I've gotten in a bad habit when I preach of just kind of, I, I was watching a video of myself. This has nothing to do with prayer, but um, I was watching a video of myself the other day, and I, and I noticed that I'm always kind of looking at this side and this side and neglecting the middle. Well, I've, I've done that a couple times tonight, but there's like nobody over there, so it doesn't make any sense at all. I've got to train myself better on that. Um, okay, back to our discussion. Uh, so the other part of this is the, the present dynamic rule of God, and what this means is we live in this in-between period, right? The, the, the already not yet is what we talk about. Between the inauguration of the kingdom, which Jesus came uh, to bring, and the consummation of the kingdom. And so the Bible calls this period the last day. So we're in the last days. Um, and many of the blessings of the kingdom are actually here that we enjoy now. So there are many blessings that we enjoy now. For example, peace with God, right? Romans, uh, I think it's Romans chapter 5. We enjoy peace with God. Uh, we enjoy the forgiveness of sins. So we can live totally free from the guilt and shame of being unreconciled to God. There are plenty of benefits of the kingdom we enjoy now, but as we know, the kingdom, of course, hasn't been fully consummated because we also deal with spiritual struggle. We deal with physical ailments, right? Our, uh, our brother uh, Buford now, who's had shingles and cancer and a variety of things, I mean, we, we deal with all kinds of ailments and problems. And this is to say nothing of relational and emotional issues, right? So relationships are strained. Pastor Brandon popped in my office this morning and he said, hey, I'm talking about tonight the image of God as we work our way through Genesis. And when you, when you consider and you think about the image of God, what, you know, what, what comes to your mind and how do you teach on it? And I taught about, I mean, I share with him one of the primary aspects is the fact that we're relational beings. You know, God creates us in his image, which means you're, we're created for relationship. But because of the fall, those relationships are strained. In fact, one of the, uh, one aspect of the curse is God says um, to the woman, your desire will be for your husband, but he will lord over you, rule over you. This is not saying that God's saying to the woman, now you're just going to really want that husband of yours. He's going to have to just be on the run from you all the time. Um, it's not sort of a, a sexual or desirous thing in that way. What he's saying is the part of the curse is that women would desire the role of the man, desire headship. And man then would re re return in sinful fashion and rule in a way that's unloving and uncaring. And so 
we're, we're created for uh, relationships, but we see now because we live in this in-between period, the, the kingdom has not been consummated that those relationships are often strained. Sometimes best friends can't get along. And sometimes husband and wives, husbands and wives can't get along. Sometimes, you know, siblings, they don't get along. And so this is one of the, we see that we, we're not really, we, we, the kingdom has not been fully consummated. We live in an intense spiritual battle. We still endure temptation, persecution, isolation. We pray for those who are sick and dying. What Jesus is telling us to pray is, God, cause your come, kingdom to come in in all its fullness. Send Jesus, God, send Jesus to make right what's wrong with this world. But as we wait, bring people into your kingdom by arresting of the, the hearts of those who are outside of Christ. Here's how I would paraphrase the second thou petition. Here's what we're asking God. God, restore all things. And in the interim, that is while we wait, expand your kingdom by bringing more people into it through faith in Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus is instructing us to pray. This is my, again, my uh, paraphrase of that second thou petition. We're saying, we're saying, God, restore all things. Will you make wrong, make right, rather, everything that's wrong with this world? But in the meantime, while we wait, will you ex expand your kingdom by bringing more people into it uh, through faith in Jesus Christ? So that's the second Thou petition. Notice it's evangelistic. It's, it's God-centered. Um, now, contrast that with many of our prayers. Think about the requests that often characterize our prayers. Aching knees and our dog's impending surgery or that it won't rain on a certain day. And, and, and that's not to say, as we talked about last week, that it's wrong to pray for the little things. It's not wrong. We're going to see when we get into this, the, the we petition, give us this day our daily bread. It's way more, okay, than just asking for food. So it's not wrong to ask uh, God to, I don't know what kind of surgeries dogs have, but if your dog is having a surgery or something, it's not necessarily wrong, right? It's not wrong to ask if you've got an aching back. Of course not. You should bring those things before the Lord. But what really characterizes our prayers? Are they characterize? Are they God-centered? Are they theocentric? Are they evangelistic? Are we are we crying out to God to to cause His kingdom to come, to cause His name to be made central in our hearts and in our lives? All right, let me look. Let's look at the. Um, well, let me talk for a minute about. Um, well, let's look at the third one. So the last part of verse ten. Um. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's a better way to read that. Cause to be done your will on earth as it is in heaven. Now, we know that God's sovereign will is always done, don't we? There's, there's nothing that can thwart God's sovereign will. You know, we're told, I think it's... Uh, Psalm 115 or Psalm 15, I forget where God says, our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. Um, we know that God's sovereign will, no one can, can mess up, can derail God's sovereign will. That's what God has decreed to take place. When we say God is sovereign, we're saying he's in control of all things and nothing happens outside of his eternal plan. 
Everything that happens in the world is ordained by God from the smallest to the greatest, from the tornadoes that sweep through the Midwest to the earthquakes that frighten the West Coast to the job change that you went through this year, whatever, to the tragedy that impacted your family. Nothing happens apart from God's sovereign will. In fact, God says this through the prophet Isaiah. Remember this and stand firm. Remember the former things of God or things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far off country, I have spoken, spoken. And I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I love this, and I will do it. Job, in the middle of his trials, he asked a rhetorical question. Can, can your will, can your plan, can anyone thwart your plan? Job 11, can man by reasoning get to God? Is there any way that anybody can derail anything you want to do, God? And, of course, the answer is no. God's sovereign will, uh, will take place. In the New Testament, Paul tells the church at Ephesus, Ephesians 1, God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his own will. God is working out, working things out for his glory and our good if we're in Christ. His vision is perfect and so is his plan, which means that every laugh, every trial, every tear, every hurt, every joy, every victory, every defeat, it's all being used by God to bring about a beautiful end. God's sovereign will is unalterable, unwavering, but his moral will, which is simply a reference to his commands, what he has commanded, those are often ignored, aren't they? So Jesus instructs us to pray that God's will would be embraced, adhered to, so that God would be exalted, and because things are always better for us when we live according to God's will. Sometimes we often, or sometimes we view God's commands as kind of burdensome, don't we? Like God's, he's just kind of keeping us from having fun. But the reality is, because God is infinitely wise, he sees the whole picture, the end from the beginning, and we only see just a tiny, tiny, finite snippet. What we sometimes fail to realize is that God's commands are, God's commands are for our good. God's commands are for our benefit. When a husband, for example, loves his wife sacrificially, it's for the good of the husband and the wife. When a wife submits, comes under the headship of her husband, it's for the good of the wife and the husband. When we deal honestly with each other, when we handle conflicts quickly and biblically, right, when we, when we live according to God's blueprint, it actually is for our good. God's not trying to rob us of joy. He's trying, he wants us to experience life to the fullest. Well, Here's what Jesus is asking us to pray, and this is my third, the third, this is my third paraphrase. The paraphrase of the third thou petition goes like this. Bring about revival on earth so that men would know you, confess you as Lord, and obey you fully just as you are obeyed in heaven. Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, cause to be made central. Set apart your name, your character, your essence, your perfections in my heart 
in my life and in our world. And then cause to come your kingdom. Bring people into your kingdom while we wait for you to bring it to consummation. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And this third thou petition, bring about revival on earth so that men would know you, confess you as Lord, obey you fully just as you are obeyed in heaven. Jesus will come again. And there's a song that Pastor Chris introduced a few weeks ago, Glory Awaits, where it says, you know, we, 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 those, who, those storm-tossed pilgrims, those who are in prison, it won't be long, the song says. It won't be long. Jesus is coming again, and he calls us to pray while we wait that God would bring people into a saving relationship with himself so that they would obey, obey him again for, for God's glory and for their good. You know, every, every illicit sexual encounter, every tiny white lie, right? every, the, the, the following through with every greedy impulse, every uh, time we give in to the temptation to eat compulsively, to over, whatever it is, all of those things, every time we reject God's ways, what, in whatever way it is, that brings harm upon ourselves. Every illicit sexual encounter brings the grief and the shame and the misery and the regret and all of those things. Every time we say, even though we would never say it out loud, every time we conclude or believe that my way is actually better than God's way, we bring upon ourselves the consequences of our own foolishness. So we're praying again for God's will to be obeyed for God to be honored, three petitions, three urgent requests of God that we're actually asking God to do because we can't do them that should characterize our own prayer lives. Now, next week we'll get to the three we petitions, but I want to just kind of in the, in the next three or four minutes just show you kind of how I go about prayer. So if you put that, so this is, you know, this, you can't, I don't know if you can read those words. Hopefully you can, but what I do is I have a picture of my family, and over that picture, I have a number of things. So on the left, and this is what I, the way I pray in the mornings, I, I want to, I, um, I used to go, there was, a, there was a room up on the third or second floor, I don't think there is a third floor, on the second floor of the offices, which was kind of a, it was a room I would secretly go in there, shut the door, and now they've trans, it's been transformed into a, a counseling center, which I'm glad about. But now I kind of now I've got to find another place to quietly and secretly pray. But what I do is I get I take my Bible and I take this prayer prompter and I begin going through these things. These are these don't change. So confession, confessing my sin before the Lord. And then I move to worship. A lot of times I'll open up the Bible because I don't have adequate words to worship God. I'll open up the Bible to the Psalms and I'll read through the Psalms out loud and I'll just praise God and worship him according to the psalm. So pray, then move to worship. And I can't even read those now. The next one I think is, yeah, the next one is family. And so I go through and I got my, I got my picture of my, my family there and I go through and keeping in mind those thou petitions, I go through and I say, God, for my son, Quinn, whom I talked to this afternoon on the phone, I say, God, will you cause your name to be central in his life? Give him a pervasive love for you so that 
so that he, he wants to glorify you above all else, above succeeding at school, above being popular on campus, above making money, above getting grades. Will you make it so that, his, that he understands your love for him in such a way that he wants to bring you honor and glory, cause your name to be central in his life? And I'll go through and I'll pray for all my kids. I'll pray for my daughter, Olivia, who's just to the right of Quinn, and I'll say, God, Will you help her to really rest in you? Help her to know what it means to be loved by you so that her identity is anchored in the fact that you know her and you love her and she belongs to you. So if she sits by somebody at lunch, great. If she doesn't, that's okay. If somebody makes fun of her at school or she feels alone, help her to know how you feel about her, how you regard her, Cause your name to be central in her life. And I'll go through and I'll pray for my wife and for my daughter, Julia, and Luke, and, and, and keeping those things in mind. Then I pray for unbelievers that I know. There's, uh, there are couples we're meeting in our neighborhood. Tim and Jackie live right across the street, and I'll pray for Tim. And they, they don't know. I don't know. I've talked to them a few times. I don't get the sense they, they don't go to church anywhere. I don't get the sense they know anything about spiritual things. And I'll pray, God, will you bring about, bring them to saving faith. Give us an opportunity. Uh, and Janine's better at it than I am. Give us an opportunity throughout the week to, to have a conversation that we can lovingly steer toward the hope we have in Christ so that we can share with them the beauty of the gospel. And so I'll go through, pray for unbelievers, and then staff. I'll pray for Pastor Adam, Pastor Chris, and Pastor Brandon. I'll go through and pray for the guys and, and ladies on staff. And then I pray for my, my friends in other parts of the country that um, for any sort of struggles or things they're going through. And then missionaries. So I'll pray. I don't always go through the whole list every time, every morning, um, but I'll pray for a particular missionary and, and pray for God's work there and, and, and pray and try to keep these thou petitions in mind. Um, praying for the, for the persecuted church, for our country as we're instructed to pray for, I'm not leading a small group at this time, but when I was leading a small group for the last eight years or so, praying for the folks in my small group. And what is it? What does the next one say? I can't. Oh, then, okay. So then personal request. Then, so that remains the same. That's, that's stationary. And then on the back, I have two uh, sticky or post-it notes. And what I do is when someone comes up to me at the end of service or somebody emails me and they say, will you pray about this? Then go back to my office and I put those on the, on the back on a sticky note and I bring those things before the Lord and ask that God would do his will there, that he would Again, keeping in mind these things, Lord, will you do what only you can do? And asking for God to meet those needs and those requests. And then as I see God meet those requests, then I can, I can put a check mark by those or I can put, swap that out with an, another post-it note and, and again ask God and intercede with him based on that, um, you know, that sort of paradigm. So praying for God to do the things that he can only do. And then next week, uh, we'll do the three we petitions, which give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then this one's interesting, isn't it? Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation. That's interesting since the scriptures tell us that God tempts no man. What does that even mean? We'll talk about that uh, next week.